Hello, my name is Stephen Dunn, and you're listening to Hellenistic Christendom, Philosophy for Understanding Theology. Okay, hello, my name is Stephen Dunn, author and creator of Hellenistic Christendom. I won't go into details. As I just told um, Samuel, I don't want to mull over annoying superficial details to talk about, you know, uh, you know what the, what's going on with the podcast. We just kind of decided to sit down, kind of last minute. I think just about five or six hours ago is when we planned this conversation. So I'm excited to finally mull over some theological details, some philosophical details um, about our differing worldviews, and just kind of explore some interesting topics: existentialism, Kierkegaard, theology, and whatever else kind of comes from that. But first, before we kind of get into that world, I'd be curious to start with um, your background, because um, despite me being excited to get into this, I don't know too much about your educational background, what you do for work, if you're comfortable expelling that kind of information, so on and so forth. So, yeah. Who are you? <laughs> sure. Um, so, I am 23 years old. I live in Wellington, New Zealand. I have studied history uh, over the last few years, and uh, I've also been doing, uh, I'm also continuing doing um, an, another second degree um, in, in theology with a mm. focus on historical, theolo- uh, historical theology and history Christianity um, and biblical studies. Mm. Um, Did you start this up recently, or was this uh, right along when you started your history degree as well? I started that sort of like um, like after one year of doing the history, the, the BA and, and major in history. Okay. Uh, so I've sort of been doing them both at the same time, but sort of the second one at a, at a slower rate, you know, while trying to finish the, the first one, right? Sure. Um, yeah, so um, over the last four or five years, I've, I've developed a, a, a love and passion for studying history and theology and the, um, the, also the interdisciplinary boundaries, you know, between the two. Mm. And particularly how it intersects with other fields like you know philosophy and phenomenology more recently as well. Yeah, um, I I have a yeah. So that's why I have a blog which is lamely titled just Historia Kaitheologia, which just means history and theology in Greek. So this is brand new, right? You just started this one. The you're, the blog. Yeah. No, no, no. It's been going for the last few years. I, it's not that consistently. Um, the last few years? I, you've never... Okay, maybe I've missed it, but you have not mentioned this blog to me. I hadn't seen... I, why haven't I seen this? Uh, well, I, I mainly mentioned it more, like, over a few years ago, I guess. Um, I see, I see. Yeah, yeah. I haven't... The main reason why I haven't mentioned it much over the last few years, over the last, like, year or two, is because I haven't put much on it. Okay. Although there have been a few posts over the last year. I feel like this is important to say, I... <laughs> Um, because it's perhaps illuminative of my, like, what who are my formative, you know, theological and other philosophical influences. Um, sure. I'm, a, I'm a huge fan of um, David Bentley Hart. <laughs> <laughs> Understood. Um, not just because um, of his unabashed universalism, which is uh, something I share with him, mm. but also because um, his his writings. Um, both theological and literary um, as well, have been 
extremely formative in my in my own style mm. of um, writing, but also just engagement with people. Although I, I hope that people don't think that I'm this as arrogant and as scaly <laughs> as some no. people out of being. Um, but anyway, oh, yes. <laughs> no man, you've been living a hard life out there. People, so people watching this don't mostly know the the punches that are pulled towards you in these Facebook comments, man. <laughs> uh, I won't name any names, but uh, dang, man. Uh, so what I'm curious actually to know is, did did you become a universalist because of David Blinghart, or were you was it already like a uh, you know just a consequence kind of thing? Sure. So yeah, as I was explaining briefly in an interview I had uh, maybe two weeks ago with um, John de Pew, I think it's who said last name. He has a, a channel called Apocalypse Here, I believe. Um nah, not on YouTube. But anyway, <laughs> he, um, as I was saying in that interview, um, my first um, acquaintance with universalism was reading David Bentley Hart's uh, New Testament translation, which was in, published in 2017, I believe. And uh, he briefly, in his notes, talked about you know how some some Greek words that translated have been mistranslated, or at least the ambiguity of them have not been recognised mm-hmm. um, regarding the eternality of punishment of hell, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and then from there, I began just reading more. Um, on the history of universalism and apocatastasis, as it's called in Greek, um, mm, mm. Um, and reading more universalist authors like Thomas Talbot. He's a famous, I guess, moderate evangelical universalist. Um, mm. Yeah, I haven't then, read much by him. Yeah, um, Robin Perry is another one. George MacDonald was another author I, I read a lot of, as I said. Um, for those who don't know, he's a Scottish artist. Um, mm. Uh, yeah, if I'm remembering his name, I have, um, I think it's Matthew Coleman uh, to yes. thank <laughs> for introducing yes. me to him a little more seriously. <laughs> so shout out to uh, Matt Coleman for that. <laughs> no, very cool. Now, so I, I guess I'm kind of curious to explore that. Was your, I guess, is there a story behind your coming to universalism? Is there like a sort of hard transition that brought you to that place? Is there, you know, how would you describe that story if it was a transition? I I wouldn't say that I ever was had I had I possessed a really hard and fast like dogmatic view on on eschatology you know the nature of the afterlife mm. or the nature of hell as I've said to various people the the only view of hell I took seriously you know a, as being a, a plausible account of hell was C.S. Lewis's view which is illustrated in the Great Divorce oh sure uh, of hell yeah. being locked on the inside. Um, being a kind of internal self-exclusion, you know, of God's presence. Yeah, but... Um, Is there anything that brought you away from that position particularly? Yeah, mainly it, it was reading those universalist authors' um, heart, but then also Thomas mm. Talbot, he's, he's critiqued um, that so-called free will defense of how quite um, extensively in his book called The Inescapable Love of God. Mm. The, the main reason why I came to reject the, the free will defense of how is because I found it to be complicit. The, the metaphysical reasoning behind it, I found it to be complicit in an account of freedom, which is a modern account of freedom, which I find to be philosophically and phenomenologically impoverished. Sure. So like in brief, you know, says Lewis, he, he, he often talks about how hell is egocentric isolation, you know, which is 
from a traditional perspective problematic on the one hand because you know hell traditionally is where um whether you believe it's eternal or not it, it has been described as a place of god's presence you know the, mm-hmm. the, the fight um the, you know if you have rejected god during your life then experience you will still experience god's presence or glory you know uh, in the next life but it, it will be painful for you right 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 um and so that i found to be problematic firstly um the idea you know from a traditional perspective i guess mm excluding the kind of so it's a quite quite a modern perspective to you know overemphasize um free will to the point where you you don't um you you're, you're focusing on the human side you know of how you know where it's not about god's the revelation of god's um love or his other attributes or whatever yeah you know you're sort of de-emphasizing that kind of active element to god's punishing right mm. um which in some ways is actually good um insofar as um certain models of punishment are reductively retributive mm. you know just concerned for um paying back quid pro quo yeah you know um but on the other hand it can be it can be too like um if you over focus just on you know the idea of how just being like a passive god giving over to the cons- natural consequences of what happens right mm. you can you can tend towards an um an overly naturalistic i would even say image you know which i find problematic. yeah so, so just, yeah sorry i was just um i was going to say you know what what interests me in in having these kinds of conversations is that i could imagine um, <laughs> the conversations you've probably had in forums, especially in interviews where you've probably told this kind of story like a million times. And I'm only interested to think of like, if I could just be a fly in the wall in those conversations where there are like those conservative evangelicals that have a pretty, I won't, I won't say tight as, as far as rationally consistent, but they're very ardent or they're very committed to, uh, you know, whatever I suppose view they have about, I guess we could call it traditionalist hell, uh, eternal punishment. But then they hear the presentation you gave, and I don't know. There seems to be like a <laughs> a psychological compromise. Um, I, I guess to take it back, what what interests me, I guess, is is there any kind of motivation that brought you to this conversation? Um, do people have suspicions that your approach to universalism maybe has something to do with like an intellectual? explaining a way of a problem does that make sense at all kind of yeah because so i don't because I, I don't want to raise just to further explain forgive me because i don't want to raise any explicit from my end uh suspicions towards you about your view but i'm just saying that i could imagine somebody would hear the that view of universalism you're giving mm-hmm. and that they, they they might think that okay what he's doing is really a kind of dodging around the issue kind of thing um, so I think yeah. so, I, I think that when it comes to approaching such a sensitive issue such a, as hell and you know what it means for God to love individuals and what this entails with you know his wrath and etc I think an evangelical in this conversation a typical I guess if I'm making a caricature here a typical kind of conservative evangelical with 
an ardent commitment to eternal view of hell that probably hasn't really brought that view of hell into serious question. And then they come into experience with a universalist, which I'll admit when I first um, came across, you know, you and a couple others, there was this flag within me that thought, okay, something deeper is going on here that, that, that needs to be addressed rather than just um, arguments for a doctrine. Does that make sense? A little bit better? <laughs> yeah, I think I know what you're trying to get at. I mean, I certainly agree with your general concern that you have, which is that, you know, often it's the case that people are not argued into their viewpoint or their change of viewpoint, but rather that they, they're certain non, you know, non-rational, not irrational per se, but non-rational factors. Yeah, yeah. Um, which do certainly influence people's um, perspective or change in perspective, you know, right. like, like this. Um, but other than that general concern, um, I suppose I wouldn't want to, to, um, to, to be overly suspicious of why people become universalists. Um, and not just me, I mean like people in general. Right, right. Um, you know, um, for some people, for, for, sorry, for a lot of people, it, it, um, it, may, it may just be because they're something as simple as, you know, the image of Jesus calling, you know, uh, his followers to love their enemies seems to mm. be incongruous, just prima facie, you know, with an image where God eternally hates his enemies, you know, you yeah. know forever, right? It's just, I think it's it's usually as simple as that kind of intuition, right? Mm. I mean, and um, certainly, you, certainly, you know, um, traditionalists might want to question the validity of that intuition, mm. you know, which is understandable, right? But um, at the same time, I think that um, yeah, I wouldn't want to dismiss it as a kind of um, as a sentimental kind of you know um, intuition, right? You know, like sort of just. I think it's a serious one, is basically what I'm trying to say, you know. Right, right. Um, and I think that, um, so George MacDonald often talks about how, like, if, you know, the light of reason through the, and can, through, through, you know, combined with the image of Jesus, you know, um, reveals to someone that a particular um, image is, you know, just incongruous, you know, it's not what God would do, then in, in some senses you have to uh, follow your conscience, which is yeah. admittedly a very Protestant thing to say, but um, <laughs> I, I, I don't think that, well, first I don't think it's a problem because I'm not a Catholic, um, who often are the people who make those sort of, uh, those cheap criticisms um yeah. you know but also just because i i think that um in a very real sense our conscience 
is our primary and a real it's a primary our primary gateway to to experiencing god and, and a, you know mm, yeah um, yeah yeah i, I think uh, forgive me if i was interrupting at all but um sure. as i was reflecting i guess on, on my question a little bit further because you you touched on it right because I don't, I don't want to get caught up in, you know, what are the non-rational factors that contribute to a person holding to a view that they do? But it's just given that my approach to theology and, you know, this is kind of that background to the existentialist conversation that we could have. But my understanding of of theology and talking about, for example, you know, those doctrinal truths about God's love, how God relates to the world and et cetera. Those are truths that are not merely abstract. Um, the individual exists within them. So to speak. So these truths have to be with pro- appropriated within the individual life. So to me, when I see an individual, and again, this is m- me just being a fly in the wall kind of observer, but whenever I see an individual kind of have those sort of comments or attitudes, let's say, on a, and again, drawing a character, just a conservative traditionalist view of hell, you can kind of see the way in which sometimes the truths that they're speaking are not appropriated within their own lives. And so you wonder if there are other sort of factors, motivations taking place that bring about this person to come to this view of, you know, for example, hell that they have. Now we could ask that sort of question for a number of theological beliefs, but when I sort of brought it back and I was thinking like with the, with the universal issue issue, I just, I wonder if, if an evangelical would have that kind of suspicion towards you, for example, that, Maybe if there was some kind of maybe prior background psychological supposition that, for example, Samuel has about God that's maybe hindering him from thinking that, okay, well, God doesn't really interact or do these kinds of things with humans. Therefore, you know, such and such is true as with, you know, universalism or what have you. Um, yeah. So the, I guess the idea is, is do you ever, do you ever come across criticisms or challenges which kind of try to like go around you in that kind of way? Do they ever try to like – they think they're pulling the rug out from under you because they're clever, and they think, ah, I've discovered why Samuel really is a universalist. I mean I feel like I see that experience a lot. That's why I'm bringing it up. <laughs> People try to really throw uh, a lot of uh, tricks and stuff at you, man. It's it's just insane. So I was just curious uh, what you thought. Yeah. Um, well, here's a common criticism that I often hear. Um Large, uh, largely by Catholics, but not exclusively by Catholics. Protestants also make this kind of criticism in their own way. Um, the criticism is just that um, you have a problem with authority. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> there it is. There it is. And submitting to authority, um, whether that be the authority of the uh, infallible scriptures, which is you know, according to Protestants, the sole and final authority upon which you have to base your faith, or, you know, you have a problem in submitting to the infallible magisterium of the Catholic Church, um, yeah. which really, I see both of those. I, I see both of them as symmetrical, kind of. Yeah. Um, as far as as far as the Catholic yeah, argument goes, for sure. Right. Um, which... Anyway, yeah. Um, so now, in the Catholic case, but also also even with the like Eastern Orthodox case, oh, sure. so, so so often Eastern Orthodox, you know, they also have a kind of 
um, they, you know, concern of for the, um, you know, authority of tradition. Um, mm. You know, the authority of uh, past saints and doctors of the church. You know, whose uh, whose opinions are not just opinions, but you know, have some right. kind of real authority in what's true, right? Um, and so the criticism in me just dis apparently dismissing, you know, the, the majority opinion or majority consensus yeah. of, of the church um, is that, you know, apparently I trust my view is infallible rather than, you know, their view is infallible. Mm. Like, infallible judgment of the past tradition or whatever. Um, now, on the one hand, this is a very superficial criticism because I'm not actually dismissing tradition. What I'm actually doing is I'm critiquing a particular um, understanding of the tradition, which has uh, unfortunately been the majority understanding of the tradition, which is just that hell is an everlasting state which has a kind of irrevocability to it. You know, there's, mm. you know, um, Catholics speak of mortal sin. You know, if you die in mortal sin, then, you know, there's a, you know, there's a sense in which you can't escape. Right. You know, so it's sort of, um, I'm just, that's the only thing that I'm critiquing. I'm, I'm saying that when people have, you know, used the language of everlasting, irrevocable destruction or, perishing or judgment or whatever that 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 is not an infallible judgment that just that specific thing specifically, mm. right and the reason why I, I i believe that's not an infallible judgment is because philosophically and theologically i don't see any good reason for why it's metaphysically can be metaphysically possible in the first place that someone can reach you know a state can enter into a state where that's possible mm. um, I mean I, I can go into reasons for that later but um, just to make my point here I I guess yeah so that's where um, I think it's important to understand where I'm coming from rather than just, you know, mm. then saying that, um, like, for example, that um, I'm elevating philosophical, my, my philosophical judgment or natural theology I see. over field theology, right? So that's a common critique as well, like, you know, um, which is just, you know, the whole, um, you know, Catholics have talked about how how Protestants, um, well, it's not just Protestants, but there's been a controversy about bet the relation between nature and grace, or you know, sure, sure, natural philosophy and revealed, you know, theology, um, and both sides, but Protestants and Catholics, they can just talk past each other in the sense that they, they don't realize that, you know, um, that both of both groups are in their own ways using philosophy or reason or experience, you know, right, right. in order to 
um, illuminate the the truth of the revealed, like mm. the scriptures as well as the tradition, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So that's just a. Yeah. Now, why? now you your you yourself are you identify as Protestant? Yes, I would. I one way I often describe myself as as a um, a quasi Eastern Orthodox Protestant. Now, the reason why I say quasi Eastern Orthodox is because um, I have got more sympathies with Eastern Orthodox tradition. Mm. Yeah, when, you seem to go more more Greek East rather yes. than Latin Latin West. Yes, but that yeah, it's, it's nothing. It's not necessarily to do with um, you know um, the Latin West having an inferior theology or spirituality or whatever, which sure. often. Greek Orthodox, particularly of the more fundamentalist bent, you know, critique <laughs> the Latins, um, for, but um, it's mainly because, at least as far as I'm concerned, um, mm. uh, the there isn't as much of an insistence, for example, on papal infallibility, right? Which I find to be a now this will trigger my Catholic friends, but a particularly deleterious socially and deleterious doctrine um <laughs> yeah um i'm stealing yeah. that <laughs> i got you so do you think give i mean given your present position do you think that there's any possibility of reconciliation with catholics is there a dialogue that needs to take place is you know pope Pius the 12th right when he said that protestantism is an entirely different religion than catholicism <laughs> <laughs> no absolutely not um it is, it is just um I thought you would laugh at that. I did too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no. Uh, that's actually a really good question. It, it opens a whole can of worms about, um, like, uh, about whether, um, this is a question I often ask myself, to what degree is Protestantism a part of the problem? You know, to mm. what degree is, you know, the, um, uh, the way in which, religious um religious uh, religious questions and just institutional religion in general became restructured after the reformation mm. to what degree has that you know resulted in a um in a form of religion which is radically individualist for example mm. do you think uh, how do you how do you think uh, just a quick side question how do you think of that secularism kind of consequence of you know, reform thing. Do you think there's a uh, a causality or a relationship between the two? Um, yes, I do think that one of the key factors, but not the only factor, sure. in what we call secularism, or the rise of the secular realm as being distinct from the religious, mm. you know, has been the Protestant Reformation and the legacy of uh, the separation um, of like natural theology and revealed theology. But I don't think it's completely, it's just not just to completely blame Protestants like Luther um, mm. on, because I think that in many ways um, the seeds were actually planted a bit earlier um 
sure. know, like in the Middle Ages, actually. Um, and here I'm not actually going to go to the um, the usual culprit, um, which the so-called radical orthodoxy movement has um, critiqued, which is Duns Scotus. Yeah, or yeah. Often, you know, as inaugurating a kind of um, nominalism or voluntarism. Um, I'm actually, I think this that's certainly interesting. But I was actually going to go a little bit back to Aquinas himself, um, controversially. Um, really? Yeah. Um, so I, I think that um, in some ways that the way in which Aquinas separated natural theology and revealed theology, or mm. you know what it would be called, philosophy and theology. He didn't, he did, certainly he didn't, um, sorry, he didn't separate them. I was trying to say he distinguished between them. So there wasn't, you know, as sharp and fast a, a you know, separation as there later became. Yeah, I was patient. Um, I knew you were going to make that clarification. <laughs> um, so like during that time, philosophy and theology were, had more polished boundaries, right? Sure. Um, as a book by John Inglis has famously um, argued. But um, the... I still think that um, um, the relation between natural philosophy, um, particularly um, an Aristotelianized kind of um, natural philosophy, um, but also, um, uh, you know, platonically influenced as well you know um aquinas mm. was not just an aristotelian he was but but i still think that um uh he he, he diluted he diluted a little bit the um the apophatic theology of Dionys pseudo dionysius for example sure um which um is i think one of the factors actually um which has led over time to um, a kind of strident, overly dogmatic or confident view of, um, you know, revealed religion, revealed theology. Are um, you talking about um, the apophatic theology of pseudo-Dionysus or the reaction... Uh, of Aquinas. Um, well, I was just saying that um, I think that one of the factors which slowly over time has led to like a sharper distinguish a dis uh, distinction between philosophy and theology being like in conflict, mm. been the way in which. Um, um, Aquinas has appropriated Pseudo Dionysius um, in a particular way, um, a particular Aristotelian way, you know, using mm. Aristotelian categories, um, which has led to later developments. Uh, or shifts in understanding how we understand God and mm. theology and, uh, you know, theology proper 
and that's what you're saying revealed theology right yeah so but this is just a yeah i i haven't elaborated upon that yet why but yeah that's just a comment yeah no yeah of course um so and as i understand it you more lean towards um neoplatonism as far as your metaphysics go as i just as i understand it yes um I do, yeah, consider myself to be a, a Neoplatonist. Yeah. Um, influenced by figures like, you know, apart from Plato, um, Plotinus, um, Pseudo Dionysius, um, mm. yeah. Hart, Nicholas of Cusa, and on. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so I was wondering if you if you actually happen to know anything about this because I. I mean, I really don't. I'm curious, but um, I was reading Carl Jung yesterday, and he was talking about the influences of Platonism and Aristotelianism throughout Western thought, and he looked particularly within the early Christian period. But he made the most bizarre observations with the relationship between Tertullian and Origen. So he looked at Tertullian's attitude towards Gnosticism and Origen's attitude towards Gnosticism, and showing how. Tertullian, by kind of reacting against Gnosticism, kind of went more towards a sort of subjectivized faith where he said, you know, I believe because it's absurd or it's impossible that the Son of God could have rise. That's why I believe it, um, whatever to the effect of that quote was. Um, and then Origen had something of a different kind of approach, which he was more emphatic um, of knowledge of the integration of um, pre-Christian pagan philosophies. And I didn't know this, if you did, but uh, he castrated himself. Um, so yeah. anyway, what, what Jung was talking about is that since Tertullian had this sort of emphasis on the subjective and Origen had this emphasis on the objective, more the intellectual side, that you could see uh, certain attitudes towards the faith emerge by way of what looks to be like a platonic kind of influence and an Aristotelian kind of influence. So by the platonic, you have the sort of mystical, you know, sort of tradition. And then with the Aristotelian, you have the practical sort of wise and that you can see this sharp sort of vague distinction take place all throughout uh, the history of philosophy. I was just wondering if those are kind of like my, my vague thoughts about what he was talking about. I was just wondering if that made any sense or had any meaning for you, <laughs> if that helped at all. Yes, um, that was actually, um, it links to something that I was just about to mention about what I consider to be the, the different attitude towards um, pagan philosophy in the Middle Ages compared to, for example, uh, in the early centuries of Christianity, um, Clement of Alexandria, Elgin of Alexandria, um, as to examples of you know, Platonist Christians or Alexandrians in particular. Um, and, yeah, so... So the, the mm. question which Tertullian raised, which has become a, a, a much misinterpreted, misunderstood sentiment, um, what has Athens got to do with Jerusalem? Um, you know... Um, 
has can represent uh, you know paradigmatically different attitudes towards um, the the value of pagan or secular philosophy mm. uh, um, with relation to the the new Christian revelation um, which has some kind of authority yeah. in itself um, now I'm not entirely sure about about Jung's um, idea about um, Tertullian being a you know seminal sure. inaugural thinker um, and um, inaugurating a kind of shift in or a different kind of slant on the faith. Although I will say that there have been later figures in in the history of Christianity who have been like Tertullian um, and vehemently um, opposing the influence of uh, Gnosticism or uh, pagan philosophy intruding into Christianity, right? While at the same time using um, the tools or the um, the rhetoric of of secular pagan philosophy. Um, yeah. Um, is your video breaking up a little bit yeah. on your, on your end? Just it, mine is. It, it is, but the volume and the I can hear you just fine. So I've been kind of like ignoring it. I was going to say while you're talking, but I was like, ah, screw it. Um, so because this will be a video, and then I'll actually separate the audio for so it. If it messes up, it's not the biggest deal to me, but yeah, not early. <laughs> so if it messes up, it's no big deal at all. But it's been, it's, the voices and hearing you has been totally fine, so. But, okay. Um, uh, yeah, no, oh, sorry, go ahead, please. Yeah, no, I was just, just going to mention, just to add a little bit more to what I was just saying. There's um, a phrase used by, I think, Peter Damien, First, in the 11th century, um, uh, the idea of philosophy being a handmaid into theology. Uh, the phrase is in Latin, it would be philosophia ancilla theologiae. So, you know, philosophy being a handmaid, mm. I guess, to theology. Um, mm. That phrase has often been paradigmatic of, for many people, of like how theology has been, you know dominating over philosophy, you know, or faith has dominated over reason. Um, which is problematic in mm. itself. But I do think that people like Damien and um, Aquinas to a lesser degree, you know, in the Middle Ages, um, do represent a slightly different um, attitude of the relation between philosophy and theology so like mm -hmm. um compared to as i said earlier compared to the early earlier christian platonists like clement and origin um now the difference is this so like uh for clement and origin um philosophy the idea of philosophy is handmade into theology 
it had a had a had a markedly positive meaning that made you know pagan philosophy have a, a crucial role in the interpretation of Christian revelation. Um, and in context, people like Clement and Origen they were combating those lay persons or other um, clergy who were despising secular philosophy and its use and interpretation and use its interpretation of the revelation, right? Whereas mm. Peter Damien and other medieval figures, they are in the monastic, you know, in a later monastic context, they are combating those who are too fond of pagan philosophy or um, just philosophy in general, right? So I think the different context, mm. monastic versus um, the earlier, more precarious situation that the early Christians had with the empire, you know, um, influenced sure. the different, slightly different attitude um, in how philosophy is defined and its relation to theology, right? Um, yeah. So later they became more like sort of separate self-contained spheres of knowledge. You have philosophy in this camp and then you have mm. theology. Whereas if you read like um, Clement of Alexandria's uh, Stromatis, which is one of his, his works, which means miscellanies in English, you, you'll see that he, um, that philosophy, philosophia, you know, love of wisdom, and wisdom um, and revelation in, in scripture are virtually equated, you know, so, th so there's no, so pagan wisdom and religious wisdom are more, um, not as in conflict as in, in an intrinsic way, you know. Um, mm. And I, I think that, yeah, I'm not sure many people have noticed this. Um, not to say, not to sound as if I've, you know, um, uh, made a, a new novel thesis, you know, which no scholar or person has ever noticed before. But um, <laughs> I haven't heard that many people um, talk on the topic of how, you know, um, there's a subtle shift in the relation between, the, the definition of philosophy and theology and which leads to a different um, understanding of the relation or the dialectic between philosophy and theology um mm. and yeah so anyway so that's just um yeah so you're saying this how the conversation has changed over time or just within a certain period yeah um so over i think it's become more intensified um, since the Reformation, mm. right, the, mm. the boundaries and the separation between philosophy and theology. Um, but I think that, um, yeah, people in the Middle Ages planted, you know, seeds which, you know, and which represent attitudes to, you know, the relation between philosophy and theology. Which later led right. to a more, which later led to this um, the separation of the two. Um, mm. Yeah, I 
I think a coin is, you know, at least for me, and you could, you might have your own thoughts. You know, I'm going to agree or whatever. But um, for me, a coin was always important because, of course, he was the synthesis or the, you know, the great synthesizer of, you know, faith and reason, philosophy and theology. And that was the first time you saw this, really the first time, but systematic, comprehensive distinction between what constituted philosophical thought and what constituted theology, you know, the divine sciences, etc. Um, and me, what makes Kierkegaard particularly interesting, he was a synthesizer, but it wasn't now this bringing together of two systems. But now, since we're in, I hate using that word post-Christian because a lot of radical orthodoxy, those are like, word, but I think important designation that that word carries and that Kierkegaard was getting at something important and I guess what you could call this post-Christian world by a synthesis that's not taking place in the abstract, in the world of thought, which is what I think the modern period is really rebelling quote-unquote against, you know, moving away from transcendence and moving towards imminence. And so Kierkegaard's synthesis um, taking place in the individual uh, to me is amazing because the whole conversation does hinge on getting right idea and actuality because of course in, in there's that common debate between the incongruence between the idea the in itself and the phenomena right and Kierkegaard has this beautiful conversation kind of brought together in an experience with God and so there this synthesis takes place on a whole new level so for me reconciling Protestants and Catholics is not going to so much having to do recognizing that, oh, you really misunderstood our doctrine. We've really been saying the same thing all along. Um, no, but I do think there's something more essential to Christianity that Catholics don't quite have. This might sound weird. I don't know what you think. <laughs> that there's something more essential to Christianity that Catholics don't have and that Protestants don't have as well. There's a sense in which Christianity as idea can't be established it can't be instituted uh always uh as Kierkegaard said it's, it's a becoming uh if you will the church is always in a state of, of becoming um so i wonder how that sits with you <laughs> that's my thoughts on it anyway yeah um i agree with um that emphasis that Kierkegaard has um on being, oh, sorry, becoming over being, or as it's often called, essentialism, oh, sorry, uh, existentialism over essentialism is another way to put it. Like, mm. um, but, yeah, once again, I, I wouldn't want to, to hypostasize or objectify um, these categories of existentialism and essentialism, or, right. you know, being and becoming, um, because the the dialectical the boundaries between those two is constantly shifting and depending on mm -hmm. um, various cultural, um, you know, circumstances. Um, so, like for example, um, one reason, one contextual reason why existentialism arose largely in in France was because there was a um after the 
French Revolution, um, which challenged the Catholic hierarchy, um, you know, which was understood to represent this kind of static moribund, you know, um, essence, I guess, you know, this unchanging essence, I guess, you know, of what true, true religion looks like. Um, that naturally, you know, results in the antithesis, you know, um, to use the Gaelic mm, language, sure. the antithesis of <laughs> overemphasizing the existentialist or um, the the pole of becoming or the uh, what's the word like? Ah, I see. You know, the idea of the importance of flux over stasis. You know, or sure. permanence. Right. Um, so do, do you do you see there being this dialectical conflict be, between the two over history? Do you see something different? I mean, yeah. I mean, in general, I, I think that the the there has been. I think Marx was right in the sense that there's always been a a dialectic between. Um, the material or um, mm. physical and the spirit or the um, idea, ideal or, you know, whatever you want to call it. Like, um, sure. And I think that the, the spirit versus matter dialectic, if you will, mm. um, uh, which we were equating with becoming and being, you know, for example, that, that, um, yeah, is very often reflective of the culture that we live in. Um, so, for example, um, there's certainly a deep relation between the spirituality of a lot of American Christianity, which is very consumeristic, and and the uh, late capitalist society of the USA. Um, so there's that connection between material conditions and the dominant imaginary or the idea, you know, which is spiritual ideal, which is, um, this competitive, um, spirituality, if you will, like it's a kind of marketable competitive spirituality, which is a reflection of the you know, like capitalism. Mm, sure. Mm. Are are now? As I understand, you are a democratic socialist as well, right? To go totally off to another conversation. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um. I would. Yes, but um. I, I wouldn't want to like sort of necessarily agree with all with all the stances of like the contemporary democratic socialist organizations like in America, for example. Um, okay. Although, pragmatically, I might I might agree and sign up to that sort of thing. Um, I, mm. Personally, um, I am uh, an anarcho-communist, you know, in the line of uh, Peter Kropotkin, um, uh, and also, no. you know, Leo Tolstoy, no. uh, Jacques Ellul, was also a universalist. Oh, people don't know that. Um, yeah, so those kind of anarchist thinkers, um, <laughs> that's my view. But, you know, pragmatically in practice, you know, I, I, I do 
you know, say that I'm a, a democratic socialist because that sort of qualifies that my socialism is not, you know, of the the statist sort, which is what most people think of in America. <laughs> mm, mm. Yeah. Yeah. Do you have so in, in that line of thought? Do you have kind of more Marxist leanings, inspirations, or are you more towards like the? I don't know if you're familiar with like Antonio Gramsci, um, you know that kind of style of socialism. Um, yes, I am. Um, I, 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 I would say that I lean more towards Marx in the sense that he was right regarding like material analysis, you know, analysis of material conditions. Mm. But like. Where Grams, people like Gramsci are useful, I think, because because he often you might know he taught he emphasised the importance of um, ideological hegemony. So it's not just you know physical material hegemony, mm. but also the hegemony of ideas or ideals, yeah, um, yeah. which I think is an important corrective, you know, to an overfocus on the imminent conditions. Um, but. For for me, for me, yeah. that's how I was uh, at least able to integrate more, or at least integrate socialism more into a relevant conversation with you know the LGBT conversation and you know right. stuff of the like. Anyway, that's just that's just what I was going to say. <laughs> yeah, um, my yeah, I, I don't have a completely positive view of Marx in general though. Um, like I, um, mm. for example, I I was reading a book recently by. Um, What's his name? Uh, and, uh, sorry, I just forgot him. But basically, it was um, <laughs> talking about the influence. The book was talking about the influence of uh, Darwin, Marx, and Nietzsche on the shape of, you know, secular humanism. Um, and he he in the section on Marx he. Had this phrase where he said he he said that notably Marx didn't talk much about forgiveness, which I think is a very important Christian virtue. Mm -hmm. um, so for all mm -hmm. the benefits of Marx's analysis, and you know for all the you know parallels that Marx as a person has between, um, like with uh, the Hebrew prophets, you know who, who railed against you know social injustices. Um, mm -hmm. I, I think that. That yeah, Marx was um, his emphasis in many ways was as a person, you know, in his writings was um, inaugurated a kind of um, attitude which uh, leads to a kind of bitter resentment, you know, of oppressors, right? Which naturally, mm. of course, leads to you know the the, the usual criticisms of Marxism. In the USSR, for example, you know, um, mm. you know, mm -hmm. which are, you know, correct. You know, they are they are just critiques of the way of how they appropriated and in many ways distorted what Marx said himself. Um, but yeah, I mean, certainly there were, but there were certainly seeds in Marxist thought which tend towards that kind of, particularly in his later. Das, das Kapital, the later volumes, like where he, 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 he really does just seem to be uh, 
um, an inversion of the capitalist system he's critiquing. <laughs> um, <laughs> kind of, you know, he sort of feels like it has this kind of um, resignation towards, you know, the industrialization of society. You know, we must just live with this, you know, this, this, we must work with it in order to overcome the next day, you know, um, which of course was very badly misunderstood by, uh, you know, with, with, when it was imported to Russia, which was an agrarian society, you know, which, you know, it was bad to just jump the stages as, which, you know, Marx very clearly said that you have to go through, you know, um, in order to mm -hmm. reach the communist yeah. utopia or whatever you need to go through, um, previous stages, um, which are necessary, which they didn't listen. But anyway, yeah, um, the point I just want to make is that Marx is, was a flawed person as we all are. And, you know, perhaps he did also inaugurate, mm -hmm. uh, an, a anti-Christian or anti-humanist sentiment over time, even if he didn't intend like he, you know, so yeah. Um, Anyway, so that's just a, a long-winded way of addressing your question about whether I'm a Marxist or <laughs> what I Marx. Um, yeah, so, yeah, complicated relation. Have you heard of, you probably heard of um, Alistair McIntyre? Yeah, oh yeah. Yeah, so like he, he had a very um, interesting analysis of Marx and himself, um, which I'm not sure you're aware of, but yeah. Um, yeah. Dennis, uh, uh, as I understand, did, yeah. I was just. Well, I was going to say, isn't it the case that he moved away from Marxism? Correct. Uh, yes. So, although the definition of Marxism is always, you know, it depends on you know on the person. Sure. Um, and so he did become disillusioned with a lot of Marxists and Marxism. Um, particularly with their, their overemphasis on um, imminent materiality, you know, mm. um, and also just the inadvertent um, uh, dualism between religion and secular secularity, which he inaugurated over time, which is not that helpful. Um, yeah. Yeah, so, uh, but I think more recently, if I'm correct, he he has a more positive view of Marx himself. Okay. Um, but he's not, yeah, I'm not sure whether he would be a Marxist, like he would call himself a Marxist, but he is someone who is sympathetic to a lot of Marxism or Marxist analysis, I, I suppose. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I'm, 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 man, I haven't read After Virtue since like 2012. Um, so it's been some time, but that book was was fantastic. Um, but um, otherwise, yeah, I remember uh, I'm relying pretty heavily on McIntyre for for being be sympathetic to Marx. But then, as I understood, it, he moved away and became more Aristotelian. He converted, I think, him right. He converted like in the 70s or 80s um, to Catholicism. Then again, I don't want to like say that because that could be wrong. But that's what I think happened, so that's that's my guess. But anyway, uh, yeah, no, I think that's right. Um, yeah, 
Oh, man, I'm trying to remember that question I had on Marx a little bit ago. <laughs> and I do this thing I literally forget all the time. It's kind of like the worst. Um, but um, <laughs> so so I guess what I'm asked is kind of go into another kind of conversation. Um, do you identify are so <laughs> people that don't know when we when we I don't know if you remember this. I, we commented on something. I don't remember what the post was about. You commented out of nowhere. I commented out of nowhere. But you had mentioned that um, <laughs> to bring up any you know old skeletons. I'm just bringing it up because it's funny to me. But you had mentioned that you know you didn't you didn't believe in the Trinity or something like that. And I said, oh, well you're not you're not saved. And then we got in a little back and forth about, well, why does a belief in the Trinity entail that one is saved? And I was like, dog, <laughs> because it does. And I just remember that conversation, how we first met, never picked it up again. Not that I want to again now, but I just, you know what always, what always fascinated, about, fascinated me about that conversation is because I really thought to myself, I was like, okay, if someone actually, if someone believes the Trinity, let's just say someone intellectually affirms that it doesn't of course necessarily entail that they're saved you know there's a way in which you know i knew that so it's like you were right but i didn't have like the appropriate mindset to see why you were right and so anyway i i just my question was going back to why i even brought all this up was um given that position that you have which i don't know if it's changed or not but do you do you identify as a christian we obviously just had the whole quasi eastern orthodox conversation so it seems like a dumb question but is there any complexity behind that description that's why i'm asking i guess is because i, yeah. I think yeah yeah so my view on the trinity has actually slightly evolved over time um although mm. i'd say that for the most part it's remained fairly the same kind of attitude or general in general, like over the last four or five years. Um, so my view is that I don't think that the um, assenting to the orthodox Nicene Chalcedonian definition of, of the Trinity, um, using the language mm. of, uh, you know, Wanusia and three apostasies, um, is a necessary prerequisite in order to be saved. Nor do mm. I think that um, the church, the, post, the Constantinian and post-Constantinian church were justified in excommunicating those heretics, you know, from Arius and Arians onwards, for example, for not agreeing or sending to that particular doctrinal formulation. Um, for reasons I can go into no, later. Um, if I'm, if I'm correct to clear, forgive yeah. me, uh, if I'm correct, just in clear, the Arians were ones, it was the difference in the, um, the letters used, right? Cause there was homo, is that the one I'm talking, you're talking about? There was homo usios, and then there was, um, however, however you say the second one, homo usios with an I, cause instead it was just an OU and I think there was an I added in the second one. So as to say that. The first one would say that Jesus is of the same substance, right. but the, yes. they would have said that Jesus was like substance. Is is this that debate? Uh, 
partly. So this is the continuation of so so those so-called homo homoousions, so those who believed that Jesus was um, of the similar nature or essence to the Father, but not the same nature. These right. were people influenced by Arius and Arian, you know, Arianism. Arian okay. thought, but they were not Arians per se. Um, they they were, um, well, they were called by different names. So Homoousion is one of the often just labels that they called. So this is in the later, sure. this is sort of uh, after the first Council of Nicaea, 325. This is sort of mid fourth, later fourth century, you know, where mm. this, this were more influential. Um, but it's, yeah, it's part of the same general, um, debate, which is, you know, whether the, the idea of the son being homo, homoousion of the same nature or essence mm -hmm. of the father, whether that is, um, uh, justified, a justified novelty or justified redefinition or reconceptualization of the previous tradition or not, right? Um, people like Arius were, were saying, who were part of a long Alexandrian tradition, which emphasized the um, uh, unknowability and the, um, yeah, um, foreignness even of God, most high or God the Father, you know, compared to God the Son, um, hmm. were, as Rowan Williams points out in his book on titled Arius, you know, the, he was, Arius was someone who was trying to be faithful to um, the Alexandrian tradition, um, not just philosophically, you know, just the philosophical categories, but also the theologically and biblically. Um, uh, he, he was, he genuinely thought that, you know, um, uh, speaking of the son as kind of a, a subordinate or deuteros theos, a second god, you know, was the more appropriately scriptural and, you know, theological, you know, appropriately theological language to use. You know, that was mm. being faithful to scripture and also faithful to the tradition, right? Um, yeah, so, but anyway, that's a, a, a brief tangent on Arius, um, going mm -hmm. back to, unless you have any further questions on that, I was just going to go back to my view on the Trinity. Um, no, please, yeah. Mm. Yeah, so as I was saying, I, for various reasons, some of which I've alluded to just now, about um, uh, the relative novelty of the homoousion homo formulation, for various reasons, I think that dogmatizing that particular dog formulation of the Trinity and then excommunicating people on the basis of whether they assent to that is, is mm -hmm. in many ways, idolatry, actually. Um, I think it's um, idolatry, mm. um, idolizing one particular way in which, God, uh, which the church has understood the triune God, you know. Yeah, so... Mm. so so notice how I still said triune God. So I still believe, in, you know, I, I believe that understanding God in, you know, three categories, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, yeah. is, very, is indispensable and, and important for Christian reflection and um, 
spirituality, you know. Um, but I don't think it's wise to hypostasize, pun intended, um, hypostasize <laughs> the uh, one particular contingent historical understanding of that, you know, what it means for God to be okay. triune, right? Okay. Okay. And so, that helps yeah, clarify. I think, where I think both, I think not just the Catholic Church, but Orthodox and even Protestants who, who do, you know, um, excommunicate or disregard people as being, you know, not true Christians based on whether they are sent to that contingent formulation. I think that that is, is problematic in, in many ways. Yeah, that's fascinating. I'm actually curious to explore that. Um, I mean, only because that's kind of the first time that formulating in that way kind of sitting with me. So it's, so you would say it's not so much the doctor Herself, maybe like there's nothing. Uh, maybe you would say, I don't know, is, is there anything intellectually incoherent or uh, biblically incoherent about the doctrine itself? Or you're, you're just saying that the belief as to the absolute unity of the you know the triune nature of God does not uh, or is not necessary for one's being saved or both claims or whichever. Um. Yes, so I do believe that, well, you said that it's not necessary to be saved. Um, but the deeper reason why um, I want to say that, on the one hand, that the Trinity is um, an essential doctrine, but not um, a doctrine that should be essentialized, um, to use the, the word mm. earlier, you know, about essentialism right the reason why is is because um i yeah i have a concern a personal concern about um um idolatry being overconfident about the truth of a particular for contingent formulation um uh yeah so mm. for me and i suppose this will now to get more into my, like my prejudices or biases i guess um like I, um, as I'm sure you know, and I'm sure other people know, I, I, I consider myself to be a classical theist, first and foremost, you know, so someone who, um, who believes in divine simplicity, um, for example, you know, as a, as a core important doctrine. Um, I don't think that the Trinity, that the way in which the early church um, so, so the um, uh, post-Nicene uh, theologians, like you know, the Cappadocian fathers, for example, the way that they understood the relation between Trinity and and divine simplicity, I don't think it's incoherent per se. Mm. Um, but I don't think it's completely like persuasive or plausible as grasping at the whole truth of things, right? So, so that's um, yeah. So another way to put this is that, is that while I see much truth in the Cappadocian formulation, you know, definition, I don't mm. want to say it's the final arbiter, you know, so, you know, the, the, the final closed, you know, like the closed definition of, you know, what you, how we sure. understand Trinity. Um, and so once again, this is 
a general concern of idolatry, but also just for me personally, I would say that I'm more confident in divine simplicity and classical theism being true than that I'm confident that um, uh, Christianity or Christian revelation, um, much less a particular understanding of that Christian revelation, you know, the um, I see in Chalcedonian understanding of the Trinity, is true. I'm much less confident that that's true mm. in a final determinative sense, which most people think of, right? Um, mm. Yeah, so so for me, it's not now, it's not so much a concern of like incoherence or like, so I have no issue in, in saying that. And sometimes okay. mm. it's a mystery um, to the, the truth of the Trinity. Um, and, mm. you know, and how can we, you know, reconcile the, the, the divine simplicity, there can be no composition or multiplicity within God. How can we reconcile that with um, the Trinity? Um, you know, I certainly there is a, a prima facie contradiction, and um, and um, but I don't think that um, um, and that makes it false per se. Um, and so, however. Here's what I'll say. Because I lean towards being more confident that classical theism or divine simplicity in particular is true, then that I lean towards um, uh, Trinitarian uh, theism is true, for example, you know. Mm. I, I would lean more towards the modalist heresy over the over the um, the other, the opposite heresy, which is, um, I guess, tritheism, you know, um, right. Right. So, so, mm. so when it comes to like philosophical uh, attempts to, to justify, um, how do you reconcile the Trinity with divine simplicity? I, I would, um, I would probably without intending to sound more like a modalist to someone who, you know, speaks as if, um, uh, the, uh, mm. the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are different modes or um, ways we understand God. I rather than a theistic, uh, a theistic personalist. You know how a theistic personalists, um, right, you know, they, right. often, they often tend to sound as if you know there's three separate gods, you know, who form a kind of um, confederacy. You know. <laughs> <laughs> To oppose yeah. that, that tritheistic kind of um, hmm. idea, that 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 um that heresy, I guess. Um, yes, yeah, so, yeah. Anyway, so that's just how I would respond to like um, divine simplicity and like the trinitarian trinitarian you know concerns. Yeah, yeah. No, fantastic. Um, I would think I would think in terms of explaining like functionally i would be a modalist as well by by terms of i don't know probably working with someone who's only ever had a natural understanding and is trying to work their way into more spiritual things but i would still reside on the claim you know of course it's a mystery once the understanding reaches a sort of experience or you know i'll say understanding of the trinity there's a a, a collision that takes place with uh with our understanding and i think uh <laughs> This is just me reflecting, but when I first was a Christian, that was hard for me to say, 
Because what does it mean to say that there are truths which are above reason? I can't, mm-hmm. I can't make sense of that. Um, but I mean, anyway, so I just think I, 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 I like the resorting just to the mystery <laughs> kind of conversation. Because I, to me, there really is no for, – even for someone who doesn't believe in the Trinity, there's no sense – I mean I wouldn't really say this, but there's no sense in defending it. Um, because it's not it's not as if it's another rationalized doctrine that someone right. is a, is to uptake, um, but it's meant to be uh, appropriated. So you know uh, the the actions of the Father, the actions of the actions of the Holy Spirit are all manifest unifiedly in the life of the believer. Um, and I think that becomes discerned the more kind of uh, the individual becomes spiritually developed. Anyway. Um, so no, that's cool. I'm actually glad that we had that clarification because um yeah, I, I, I don't think I've ever thought of it like that. I guess, but um yeah, dope. Um no, I was gonna kind of conclude up, get a finish here, but unless you had any other particular questions, something else to hop on, something that we may have missed, anything that we should have addressed that we didn't address, because I feel like there's maybe a few things, but then, then again, maybe not. Um, I guess just one thing I would just add to what we've just last said is that um, I would recommend just as a, a resource for thinking through these issues, um, you know, the divine simplicity and the Trinity, um, actually reading um, Nicholas of Cusa, actually. Um, mm. um, I've, I've never read anything by him, actually. Now, a brief reason why is because he, um, unlike some of the popes of his time, had a more peaceful, less hostile attitude towards non-Christian religions like Islam. Um, uh, and so, for example, there's one work of his which I'm thinking of, which I've referred to on other occasions called De Pace Fide, which is literally on the piece of the faith, you know, where he... he um, he appropriates this, uh, a Dionysian insight of how God is, for, for God to be triune or Trinity, is not a quantitative, um, arithmetic kind of, you know, three entities, but rather mm. um, it, God is beyond number in a sense. So, so what he mm. tries to do when he, when he, 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 he tries to create a kind of ecumenical dialogue with Islam or Islamic claims, you know, against the Trinity, um, is that he, he tries to show how they, they misunderstand, firstly, how they misunderstand um, what it means for God to be, you know, um, one, but also three in and one, right? But then he, mm. he, go, he goes on to, um, yeah, show how, like, um, he, he does, I suppose, lean towards what I was just saying earlier, a modalist um, uh, understanding, although he's very careful to not commit the modalist heresy, you know, he, you know. but mm. the reason why I mentioned that is because I genuinely think that um, we've got for interreligious, interreligious dialogue, you know, ecumenical dialogue between like Islam and Christianity, for example, that just asserting 
you know, a, a, you know, and two parallel monologues, you know, that, you know, this is the Christian view, set view of, you know, and then this is the Islamic view, which is anti-Trinitarian or whatever. That, that, mm. that is, the, the, there's not a good way to conduct interreligious dialogue. The, the better way, which Tusa reveals, is that, is to see that the, the inner um, esoteric um, common ground uh, between Islam and Christianity without eliminating the, the diversity and differences between them, right? So you need mm. to come, while acknowledging the differences in the way that the traditions have understood God, you know, you, you, if you just conclude the dialogue with, you know, we will just agree to disagree, you know, there's no sense in which we can actually have a common, have a deeper sense of agreement or um, uh, consonance between the two traditions, then I think you're just, yeah, you're having a monologue, you're having two sets of monologues rather than right. a, a, true, a true dialogue, you know, which can, a dialogue is open to change, I think. So like, open mm. to be about how the tradition has been understood. Anyway, I'll finish there. Um, but yeah, um, that's just one thought I've had. Um, probably needs to be developed a little bit more on how, you know, perhaps leaning towards an emphasis on the modalist side um, without mm. going, you know, so retaining the tension between the opposite extremes of modalism and tritheism, you know, how over, how emphasizing the modalist uh, side, you know, what can actually be fruitful for dialogue, um, for true dialogue with people, right? And I think Cusid did that well in the 14th century. Um, but anyway, I'll, I'll let people uh, no. read. Fascinating. Yeah. Yeah, I just pulled up my library that I hadn't read yet on medieval philosophy while you were talking, and actually I have a whole section by by here by Nicholas of Cusa, and it says, uh, if I'm saying that right, Cusa. Yeah, Cusa, yeah. Uh, on, on learning, so I have like two copies on that one here. So that's just kind of funny. Something I can already get started with, so I'm kind of excited. But um, yeah, no, but dope, man. I was, I'm, that's something that's kind of hitting me too as well. Is that. Um, Right now, just kind of to speak off cuff, but a lot of my focus right now is kind of turning back to apologetics. But I've always had this preoccupation with trying to deal with unbelievers as if apologetics is about learning arguments to deal with those people that don't share your worldview. But I think in my further engagement with Kierkegaard, I'm realizing that really the hard apologetic work is actually within one's own <laughs> religious worldview. That really apologetics for me, and more significantly, is being done amongst Christians, I really have found like less care having to deal with atheism or secularism or paganism. And I find that Christianity often uh, has a lot of the problems that I'm after. Um, so anyway, just trying to think a little bit better about interpersonal religious dialogue. Um, and that was actually a fascinating point that you brought up because I, I think our agreements are always what interests me more than our disagreements. Because we can go back and forth on I'm a Christian, you're not, and let's just propound those differences. Or yeah. what do I recognize as a human being, as an individual? And what do you likewise recognize? And can we work from that ground, you know, upwards, if you will? Um, but yeah. 
to to me to develop that as, as you know a skill it's difficult man it takes it takes years it takes a lot of study uh, and i feel like i'm like just getting started <laughs> on that project um after my now series but um anyway but yeah man no that's um that's really but um yeah again otherwise if you